The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen McCaff, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, the regnal name generator edition. It's Wednesday, November 9th, 2016. On today's show, The Crown, it's the sumptuous Netflix series from the creative mind behind such films as The Queen and Frost Nixon. This one tells the story of the reign of Queen Elizabeth II. It's many parts long. It goes to 10 this season and 60 eventually. And then Loving, it's also a historical drama. It tells the story of the couple behind the landmark Supreme Court decision that invalidated laws banning interracial marriage. And finally, the Making Gay History podcast mines the remarkable audio archives of the writer Eric Marcus and his interviews of the people who fought for LGBTQ rights and helped bring gay life out of the closet. Joining me today is the editor of Slate's LGBTQ blog, Outward. That, of course, is June Thomas. She's also one of the hosts of the Double X podcast. June, welcome to the show. Thank you. Your uh, usual uh, third is a little bit busy today. Julia. I think so. <laughs> We're recording on election day and Julia is... A day uh, that one is happy not to run a magazine on exactly, top of everything else. Exactly. Right. So people will be listening to this knowing what we don't know. Um, so we are, in fact, the foreign country known as the past. Um, <laughs> we greet you across the river Styx, maybe, I don't know, um, on the far banks of um, this uh, rather prolonged election season, right, Dana? Uh, of course, I'm joined by Dana Stevens, the film critic of Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. Dana, before we uh, dive in here, uh, we must have some business, yeah? I believe the only business we have is to tell you that the Slate Plus segment this week is going to be political in nature, given that we're recording on Election Day. And what we're going to talk about is our earliest political memories, all three of us, the first time we recall the political world impinging on our own. So if you are a Slate Plus member, you can look forward to that extra segment. And for those of you who are not Slate Plus members, if you want to join our membership program, we have a special deal right now, $35 a year rather than the usual $50 for a Slate Plus subscription. So if you're interested in looking into that membership, you can go to slate.com slash culture plus. Superb. All right, moving on. The Crown is a new Netflix series. It retells the story of the early reign of Elizabeth II, still, as far as I know, June, confirm me on this, still the sitting queen of England. Indeed she is at age 90. As of this recording, the show starts in the years immediately following World War II with her her father, George VI, still king but in ailing health. As I said, it's set to extend to 60 episodes and therefore bring us up to the present day, along the way telling the recent history of England and asking what was the inner life and experience like of this person who in her way presided over the 20th century. Um, why don't we listen to a clip? So in this scene, we hear the young Princess Elizabeth and her husband, Philip, talking about a tour, a world tour that she's about to make in lieu of her father, George VI, who's sick and in fact a lot sicker than anyone at that moment knows. Ceylon, Australia, then on to New Zealand, Bermuda, and there's talk of starting in Kenya. Right. We'll be gone months. <laughs> yes. But it would mean so much to Papa that we do it. And what am I supposed to do all that time? Well, don't worry. We'll put you to work. Charles, come back. My work is as a naval officer not grinning like a demented ape while you cut ribbons. What about the children? The children will be fine. Oh, without their parents for months on end. Daddy, can you come and play? I won't be a moment, darling. If you go and play with Grandpapa, I'll be right over. Well, come on, Daddy's busy. Come and start again. They won't know. They're too young to notice. It would so help in Papa's recovery. 
June. Mm-hmm. Um, I was always told growing up that the uh, English royal family were nothing really more than a tourist trap. Uh, mm-hmm. They'd become that over the course of you know the previous hundred years or whatever it was. What do you make of telling this period of English history through this particular lens? Is it just a incredibly juicy, fun soap opera and we shouldn't take it seriously? Or is it a preposterous anachronism we ought to uh, be suspicious of? The answer to your question, Steve, is all of the above. I, <laughs> Good answer. Great answer. I speak as a confirmed, in this case, total Republican. I think the royal family are just a huge like parasite on the body of England. Wait, How, you have to give the English definition of Republican there. You mean oh, anyone who's anti-royal? Anti, anti, I'm an anti-monarchist. I think that monarchy is ridiculous. But I must admit that even though this show is just pure propaganda for the monarchy, I really rather enjoyed it. And because it is both a soap opera, like it's a soap opera with a RP accent, which to say received pronunciation, the rather strangled way that the Queen speaks. <laughs> um, but it also is a story of British history. I mean, the Queen, Queen Elizabeth II, is the thing, the person, the entity that has been there all along. You know, as Peter Morgan's play, The Audience, uh, shows, she's had this endless stream of prime ministers, but she endures. And I suppose the the whole story of this show is that the monarchy endures. Um, And so it's all of the above. And even though, despite my feelings about the royal family, I did find this really very watchable. And even though it, it suffers from something that we actually talked about on the Double X Gabfest last week in the context of another show, Good Girls Revolt, where because it's history and because they just don't believe that the audience will figure it out, they just say ridiculous. They have people saying ridiculous, unbelievable dialogue. So, for example, you know, we, we use the title Regnal Name Generator today because when George VI eventually dies and the Queen is asked, uh, well, what will her regnal name be? She, she sort of goes, regnal name? <laughs> as if we have the right guest host today. As if, as if somebody in her position, whose only education has been about the ridiculous ins and outs of the the monarchy and the the, the non-existent constitution, she he then goes, well, you know how your father's name was Albert, <laughs> and your uncle's name was George, but he was going to be King Edward. You're like. And I just thought, like, her response, if she was any sort of real person, would be, tell me something I don't fucking know, mate. You know, like, because she knows all that shit. But we have to, you know, this poor bloody equerry has to say this dumb stuff till we'll go, oh, that's what a regnal name is. Okay. But so to, even despite that. Yeah, re- that happens a lot with Winston Churchill as a character, too. He's Absolutely. played by John Lithgow. And it seems like every single scene has one of those classic biopic lines where yes. he has to be called Winston. So exactly. you remember that he's Winston Churchill. <laughs> exactly. I don't know what you're talking about, Winston. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Clemmy. Anyway. Uh, Dana, what do you make of this uh, ridiculous feast? You know, I went in thinking that this was going to be the biggest snore because... I just have always found royalty, contemporary royalty. I was, I was thinking about this during the many, many minutes that this show gives you to think <laughs> right. about such things as long pageantry, you know, sort of processions or moving up and down various church corridors. I was just thinking that modern royalty is so boring and trying to figure out when the English monarchy became utterly boring. And I think it was basically right before this show starts. <laughs> Right. Because Victoria, Queen Victoria, that era is fascinating because England was an empire. You know, there were all these wars going on. The queen was a a more important political and cultural figure. But then as soon as the 20th century turns, 
and it, it's still narrowing more and more down. Like the royalty just seemed like these corgis and pens, you know, that are being expensively <laughs> kept by the nation. And yet, I, I think I did really get sucked in, not so much by the queen story. Claire Foy is really wonderful She's as fantastic. the young queen. Yes. And and Matt Smith is her husband. It's a, it's a, they're both fantastic in their roles, but they're just boring people. And yeah. so I was much more interested in the generation above them, um, the, the generation of Winston Churchill and of King George VI, who's played by, who plays King George VI? Jared Harris, who uh, people, many people will know from Mad Men. He's fantastic. I was not a Mad Men watcher, but he is so, so good and just steals the only, I guess, two episodes of the show that he's in. Um, June, let me ask you a piece of completely rudimentary history, but this would be the same George VI that delivered the speech in the King's Speech. That's right. And so, and that's one of the kind of ongoing uh, plot lines in a way that, you know, he was never meant to be king. His brother, David, uh, who was going to be Edward VIII, um, who is mostly known as the Duke of Windsor, who has quite a big role in in the first few episodes of this show, abdicated so that he could marry the woman he loved, uh, Wallace Simpson, uh, a.k.a. Nazi sympathizer. Um, and, and, uh, and worse, an, Amer- an American. An American, a thrice-divorced American. Um, but, uh, you know, he stepped down and George VI had to step in and he did have his, he was a nervous man and he was, uh, you know, from you know, the way the propaganda wants us to believe, you know, a good man who, you know, wasn't prepared for, you know, to wear the crown. And so, uh, you know, his daughters, who, you know, also were not expecting to step into this kind of role, were secondarily thrust. Um, mm. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, that's why there's all of this stuff that anytime anybody wants to do anything a little bit different or show a little bit of personality, they're, they kind of point to David to the Duke of Windsor and say, no, as soon as you start to go off script, this is what happens. And mm-hmm. they can see, you know, doom the end of their of their kind. And, you know, in a way, we know, just as happens many times in this show, they're saying things that are rooted in the past, but they're actually looking forward in history. So mm-hmm. that a lot of, you know, we know that there will be, uh, you know, a golden-haired young woman who will actually break up all of this emotional stuff, um, you know, mm-hmm. that will actually make Britain start, Britain start kissing each other. Um, you know, it's funny because, uh, as Dana points out, I mean, the, the actual power, political power of the royal family only narrows during, as I understand it, during what will be the course of this entire television show, only becoming more symbolic and sort of socio-emotional, if that's a possible concept. And in order to make up for that dramatic gap, uh, a kind of portentous melodrama has to um, be brought in to to fill it. Um, And uh, that said, I loved it because the production values and the obvious intelligence behind it are so high. And uh, Claire Foy, the whole thing would fall to pieces if her face were not registering. uh, She doesn't speak in the first couple of episodes a whole lot, but she does an enormous amount of very subtle acting uh, completely with her face. And if and if she weren't doing that precisely well, then I think the whole thing would be incredible and slightly ridiculous. But she, um, she sustains it. June, I thought my affection for the show was almost completely uncomplicated, but for the obvious uh, couple of caveats. And then I read a wonderful piece in The Guardian. I'd just like to quote, um, quote it for you. 
Uh, the Crown, like Downton Abbey, mm. Victoria, or even Indian Summers, depicts moments in history as a pageant in which the wealthy, the entitled, and the nobility oversee the lives of millions with benevolence, wisdom, and grace. This does enormous disservice to the epic because it was a time when a socialist tide raised all boats. History was literally being made from the bottom up because while Princess Elizabeth was being fitted for her wedding dress, ordinary Britons were dismantling a thousand years of feudal mentality through the creation of the welfare state. Um, I'm enormously sympathetic to that reading of history. And, and by the way, whether you like socialism or don't like socialism, it happens to be true. I mean, mm-hmm. this is the period mm-hmm. where Attlee actually wins uh, after World War II and enacts the Beverage Report, and hence your lucky people or previous mm. people um, has universal social services that we can only dream of one day having. And isn't that the story of this period and not a bunch of people tootling around in ridiculous jewelry? Absolutely. I mean, yes. And I read that piece too and liked it very much, but I also think it's a very narrow reading. I mean, most of us know that when we see shows about Britain generally, we get one we get one part of the country and we get one class of people. And like you see a, a show about the Queen and a bunch of posh people, but you don't only you know that they're just standing in for something else that's really there. It's it's just mm-hmm. that it's a business thing. You always only get things about the South and about posh people, maybe with some servants. Uh, I I applaud the crime for not making too much of the servants because that can sometimes be, no, look, we've got ordinary people. Look here, they're servants. And no, we just, they're standing in for the whole country and we know we're only seeing a slice. But I mean, just to, to, to jump in, I, I would defend this over Downton Abbey, which I watched the first season of and then kind of lost interest in and kept hearing that it got more and more more soap opera more like this is far better written and more intelligent. And although it may not be showing a wide swath of British society, it asks political questions that mm-hmm. are meaningful yeah. and uh, and it shows the political process in a complex and meaningful way. I mean, in that sense, it's just it's a Peter Morgan product, right? It's right. a product of that that mind. And I wanted to ask June something about this because I think you know more about the Peter Morgan verse than I do. But that was how I started to think of this particular type <laughs> right, of British right. entertainment that sort of it's almost like the Star Trek universe where yeah. there's these different can- pieces of the canon that overlap with each other, right? So, for example, Peter Morgan's The Queen, or at least written by Peter Morgan, mm-hmm. right, as all the episodes of this show so yes. far have been, um, shows Helen Mirren as the same character later on in life. Yeah. So you can kind of piece it together like, you know, a bunch of, of different comic book superheroes. And I yeah. can really see how <laughs> Even if one was not a royalist, uh-huh. royalist-loving nerd, that yeah. you could you could start to enjoy that form of entertainment. Absolutely, and as I say, I do think there are references into the future. Can I just say one thing about this um, show, mm. which is um, the episode in which uh, the coronation happens? Queen Elizabeth's coronation was the first one that was shown on television, so it was the first one that ordinary people had any chance to see. But there's something that happens in the coronation, uh, the anointing, which I had never heard anything about. And during the the televisation of Elizabeth's coronation, um, they, you know, some of her retinues, various dukes and, you know, whatever, aristocrats, held up a canopy so that the the cameras couldn't see. And they made it seem sacred uh, moment where she's anointed. And that's utter bullshit. And at the same time, I found it absolutely, totally moving. And I just, you know, the queen, who I, you know, I think is, perfectly nice 90 year old woman and you know i respect her work ethic and all that stuff but it made me it did give me feelings about the queen and about this very peculiar role of, of, of almost is kind of a demigod there is something godlike about how the the royal family are what they're told about themselves and how they're 
just, you know, it's the message that they receive. And that was really, really moving. All right, let's go around the table. Percentage chance that you will watch all 60 episodes of <laughs> June Go. Well, I'm I would gonna have to say yes. And also, the Queen's 90, but you know, she seems to be in fine form. Maybe there'll be 70 because it's 10 episodes <laughs> for every decade of her reign. So it's gonna be in real time by the end. <laughs> exactly. I'm not ready to say maybe it'll be a hundred. Who knows? I love the I love the idea that the final ten episodes will just be a GoPro sort of play. <laughs> yeah, periscoping from Buckingham throne. Palace. Yeah. Uh, Dana, percentage chance all sixty. What do you got? Oh, dude, I didn't know there were sixty until I sat down in the studio and heard you talking about it. I, I can't go sixty. I mean, last night I would have said yes, I will watch all of this if it's sort of one of those thirteen episode runs and and then it's over. But essentially, as we were saying earlier, the closer it gets to the modern day, the less I care. So I'll probably get in a few more. But Claire Foy is going to age out of the role pretty soon or age mm-hmm. below mm-hmm. the role. And uh, and I think it'll be a big loss when she goes. Uh, I love Peter Morgan. I like her very much. I'm going to see 10 without fail, 20 almost without fail, 60 seems uh, like a stretch. All right. It's called The Crown. It's on Netflix. Uh, you should check it out. And you should come to facebook.com slash culturefest and tell us what you think of it and what you think of uh, royalty as... <laughs> as proud Republicans or not. All right, moving on. All right, well, I have to announce that sadly, thanks to a series of uh, snafus that are nobody's fault, the screener for Loving did not make it to Ghent, New York, to the Ghent Bureau of Slate.com. Therefore, I was unable to watch the movie. But, uh, oh, Felix Culpa, we have a nice uh, turn of events, which is that our new producer, Benjamin Frisch, is going to sit in in my stead and discuss the film, which he has seen. All right, I sign off now. Break a leg. Enjoy. Loving is the fifth film directed and written by Jeff Nichols. It tells the story, the backstory and the full story of Loving versus Virginia, the 1967 Supreme Court case that made it illegal for states to ban interracial marriage. The movie stars Ruth Negga and Joel Edgerton. We all saw it and we're here to talk about it. Uh, this is a movie that's getting a lot of rave reviews, a lot of Oscar attention to the extent that anything gets Oscar attention this early in the year <laughs> and is generally being talked about as a serious film of 2016, mm-hmm. right? Um I've read very few negative responses to this movie out there, and it's sort of a difficult movie to hate, which we can talk about in a minute. But I think we've managed to get someone in the studio who's an exception to that rule, (laughs) Benjamin Frisch, our producer, and uh, sit in for Steve on this segment. So I'm going to start with you, Ben. What did you think of Love It? Well, I didn't hate it. It is a hard movie to hate. Maybe part of it was expectations because, you know, I knew going in what Loving versus Virginia was as a court case, why it was important. And so coming in, I sort of expected a court procedural, you know, with twists and turns about sort of how this case went through the court system up to the Supreme Court and then struck down these um, anti-miscegenation laws. But that's really not what the movie is. The movie is really a romance between two people that are pretty much already in love. Um, and I think we have a, a, a clip that illustrates that pretty well. I want to put the kitchen back, right back here. Richard, stop this. I don't know what you're saying. I bought it. This whole acre. I'm going to build you a house. Right here. Our house. Nailed it. 
Would you marry me? So that clip that we heard was when uh, Richard proposes to Mildred, obviously. And I think it expresses something that everybody who sees this movie notes, because you can't avoid it, that there is very little dialogue that both Mildred and Richard Loving in life, as in this movie, were apparently very taciturn people, very reserved, and were not given to, um, you know, emotional statements. And, you know, I imagine that the amount of dialogue in this movie is probably about, you know, two pages of an Aaron Sorkin screenplay. Just like there's just not a lot of dialogue. It's it's pretty much Luke's and quiet sort of regard for each other. Yeah, this movie is subtle, I, I would say, almost to a fault. And maybe that is the fault that, that Benjamin would find with it. I mean, knowing that it had been directed by Jeff Nichols, who also made, I don't know if y'all have seen any Jeff Nichols movies, Take Shelter or Mud. He's a Southerner himself. He tends to make these very um, sparse sort of uh, movies with a lot of space in them, you know, movies where the story has much more to do, as June says, with looks and glances and changes in people's relationships than with the course of outer events. So when I heard Jeff Nichols was directing a movie about Loving versus Virginia, I knew it would not be the courtroom procedural, Ben, that you talked about. But this movie takes it really, really far as as far as taking the melodrama, sort of draining the melodrama out of this story. You could never accuse this movie of being grandstanding, and I wouldn't want it to be more grandstanding than it is. But when I started to read about the real case and realized that, for example, the Lovings had a cross burnt on their lawn twice during their marriage, that, and none of that makes it into the movie, then it starts to seem as though the attempt to de- melodramatize the story has sort of de-dramatized the story. See, I, I I saw a lot of critics saying that, including your great review, Dana. Well, which was overall a positive yeah, review. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Very positive review, but I I don't know quite how to um, sort of calibrate it. You know, that you just felt perhaps that it was a little under-dramatized. Let's just right. say that. Did you not think it was dull? There was a lot of time spent of characters just looking at one another lovingly, and, and those characters were never really under pressure. There was not a lot of tension on them, despite the fact that they're engaged in this incredible historic thing. And so I never I never really felt compelled to really engage with them as characters. I think it's interesting to see this movie after having seen Moonlight. The main character of Moonlight is also very, very quiet. You read a lot into the main character who he's pushed constantly by the pressures of the world in this movie, the pressures of the world, despite us being told what they are, don't feel that effective. And by the end of the movie, it sort of seems like the characters don't actually even care that much about the stuff that's happening around them because they're so in love, which I guess is great. But um, to me, was not a lot to hold on to. You know, right now we recently had the you know, the historic gay marriage decisions in the United States. And so discussions around marriage and the legality of marriage feel apropos. But this movie doesn't feel like it wants to engage in that. I just really wanted it to engage a little bit more. To me, I felt the opposite. I didn't find it dull. And I wasn't craving more drama because to me, I'd seen movies with drama. I've seen movies with crosses burning on lawns. I know that happens in real life. And what I felt was I felt like there was something new in this film, which was really an expression of those small pressures, like not the pressure of, you know, the eyes of the of the world or the eyes of the nation. They didn't that they really didn't seem to be concerned about. Um, but just what it means, this sort of it was almost a tribute to microaggressions, you know, that that they it, I it felt really clear to me what was so painful. So to give a little background when they so they get married 
in D.C. They go back to Virginia and the local cops storm into their house in the middle of the night and take them, pull them out of bed, take them to jail and lock them up. And then after their trial, they make a settlement, which is that they will not go to jail if they leave Virginia. So they go for the next 25 years, for the next 25 years, which, you know, some people might say, well, you know, that's okay. It's not that far. But it was really made clear to me why that was so terrible, because there was so much like their their neighborhood, their friends, their family was their life. And that was the worst punishment they could have been. It wasn't that, yes, they weren't in jail. Yes, they were together, but they were so isolated and the isolation was their punishment. It was a terrible punishment, uh, which was clearly very unfair. And that, to me, that was something, a very subtle uh, thing that I really hadn't seen portrayed before. And all that other stuff that wasn't there, I have seen before. And so I liked the lack of of traditional drama. Yeah, you know, as soon as one of you starts to talk, I think, yeah, he's right. Oh, wait, she's got something. I mean, this is this is that kind of movie, right? Yeah. It's a movie that that is so so sort of slight and unassuming in its shape that you can you, you can do a lot of different things with it. And I guess I would strike the balance by saying, yes, I was also not bored in this movie ever. The relationship was something that I cared about and was invested in and I didn't need to have them speechifying or, you know, being madly passionately verbally in love. It was fine that they were silently in love. But I thought the characters, particularly Ruth Negga's character of Mildred Loving, were a little too uncomplicatedly saintly. Mm. And uh, and those the pressure of those microaggressions you're talking about, June, and which, I mean, in their case, I'm sure it felt much more than micro, yes, given that yes. they are small town people who had never lived anywhere but the small Virginia town where they met each other. I just wanted once during the movie to see Ruth Negga's character crack a little bit under the pressure. It wouldn't have to be, you know, a temper tantrum or bursting into tears or making some kind of righteous speech. But she just seemed so kind and gentle and patient and forgiving. And at least Joel Edgerton's character got well. He got to weep once. Mm -hmm. It seems like this is the year of men weeping in the movies, right? And I'm loving it. I'm loving every minute of it. The the performances are wonderful, especially the the two leads. Ruth Negga's face is is so just like magnetic and wonderful to watch and she really she really carried a lot of, of but the But did movie you for all me. feel that her character was a bit too saintly? I mean it wasn't that she was, you know, filmed in some sort of hazy glow or anything. It's just that she never got pissed off or cranky about anything. Absolutely. She, the uh, I think a big a, a sort of f- fundamental problem with this kind of source material is that um the the politics of the film are so fundamentally horrible and nobody can possibly disagree that these laws were horrible now, obviously. They were horrible in their own time. The morality of the film seems very simple because the politics actually are quite simple. That leaves the characters and the story feeling a little bit uncomplicated. Yeah, I mean, uh, here's what I one thing I can definitely say about Loving is that there, there's, no, there's no particular moment that I object to or disliked yeah. or would change. But when I think about what's my 10 best list going to be this year, there, there's almost no way that I would put Loving on it. And I think it is just simply because it falls short in the department of passion and engagement and mm. walking out the way you walk out of Moonlight, for example, thinking, you know, that movie really ch- broke something and, mm-hmm. you know, it changed something. And I'm, I'm walking out with a different set of thoughts and emotions. I mean, you go into Loving, one hopes, knowing that the Loving versus Virginia decision, as, be- as Benjamin says, was you know, something that just seems like the most obvious sort of declaration of what it should mean to be an American, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you don't walk out with any significant 
different discovery about that case, although you do have more of a sense of the, the broad history behind it. Yeah, so Nick Crow plays their attorney, and he's strange such, casting. Oh my god, this was so weird. But did you dislike it? I hated it. Oh, I I love Nick Kroll. Uh-huh. I think Kroll Show is the best sketch comedy show huh. since uh, Mr. Show. Probably, I am a huge fan of the Nick Kroll universe uh-huh. and too much tuna and publicity and all of that stuff. And he plays a like a a serious. Um, pretty unfunny uh, ACL. Or I guess he's not an ACLU lawyer. He works for the ACLU. Or, he's working on behalf of yeah. them, yeah. Maybe it's because I know Nick Kroll as Bobby Bottle Service, <laughs> but um, really the only piece of casting that, that felt very off. See, I... See, I I reacted differently, I think, because my response to him and my relationship with him is very different. I know that he's a sketch comedian. I've seen him in a few things, but I don't I've never watched his shows. Um, I wouldn't pick out any of his characters. And so I knew that he was a comedian and I knew this was out of place in his oeuvre. But I kind of liked that sort of sense of trying to just as his character was trying to give a slightly different appearance, like he was trying to convince the Lovings that he would be a good attorney for them, even though he didn't really have experience, they didn't really understand their world. Uh, and also Nick Kroll is trying to convince us, the viewers, that, that yeah, he's an actor, <laughs> that he's usually a, a comedic, you know, goof, but he's actually uh, an actor. And so I thought that I thought that worked. Uh, yeah, I have no like, relation to Nick Kroll and was yeah. not bothered by his casting at all. Yeah. I, I I read some people out there making the argument that the, the lawyers are presented in an anti-Semitic way. See, I movie. thought it was so philo-Semitic. I thought this movie was you know, like more philo-Semitic than it was pro-miscegenation. Like this, the, <laughs> the, the, the this, you know, that that, it, and essentially one of the subtexts was you know the contribution of Jewish lawyers to the civil rights movement, um, and you know which is also true. Um, but I was going to say that one of the things that in the in the case, so you have like one of the surprises is, oh, the goofy lawyer, that he's not as experienced as he really maybe should be. Right, or his forehead's be... sweating all the time. Yeah. He's anxious about this big case. I, that worked for yeah. me. Yeah, and just the sort of the joy in getting the terrible judgment from the judge in their home county in um, Caroline County, I guess, um, that you know is now famous for having just essentially been a case for the non-mixing of the races, and you know which came up during Obergefell. Oh, right. And that so was on. the argument that it was a biblical. There's a biblical precedent. For yeah. The, right. And there was so much. You know, so there there are direct parallels, obviously, that that were brought later. You know, between the way that the kids all about the kids, and you know, it's that these religious uh, motivations. But so that whole thing of actually being glad to get a terrible judgment and how useful that is. Like that was something a little bit different in a familiar rather than a familiar courtroom drama. So I kind of liked that they made that choice. So so Dana, is this an Oscar contender, do you think? I, I can't imagine that this won't show up somewhere in the Oscars. I mean I haven't seen all the big movies at the end of the year yet, but Ruth Negga seems like a shoe-in for a Best Actress. I could see Joel Edgerton getting a nomination as well. And, I mean, it's awful to say, but this is the kind of movie that the Academy tends to like. Okay, maybe not because of that subtlety that we're talking about. It's 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 a little more delicately orchestrated than your, your average give-me-an-Oscar-type movie. But between the topic being the kind of topic that Oscar voters like to see movies on and the significance of the performance, the fact that it's an acting movie, right? It's really an actor's acting movie. I, I can't. I imagine it will get some recognition. 
All right. Well, it's it's nice to have an actual knockdown, drag out <laughs> battle about a movie. I mean, if you can call this, this is about as much of a battle as the yeah. Supreme Court battle shown in that movie. Very mild mannered. Um, but thanks for coming in to talk about it, Ben. Yeah, this is fun. So everybody, please go see Loving and come to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest and continue the fight. Making Gay History is a podcast from the writer Eric Marcus. It is essentially his audio archives from decades compiling an oral history of the LGBTQ civil rights movement. June, we rarely talk about podcasts on this podcast. Um, The best thing to do is probably play some audio clips and give people a sense of what this remarkable document is like who haven't heard it. Why don't we begin with a clip, but why don't why don't you set it up? Yeah, so these podcasts are outtakes, essentially, from Eric Marcus's interviews that he did uh, when compiling a book, also called Making Gay History, um, and they're mostly from the late 80s, and um, he sets them up beautifully. Uh, but the first one we're going to hear from is when he talks to Sylvia Rivera, who is um, now her fame has grown much larger even. Um, she was there at the Stonewall on the night of the riot. And one of the things that she talks about, you know, why people after endless raids uh, stood up to stood up on this particular night. The Stonewall was a mafia bar uh, that um, like most of most gay bars at the time, um, you know, paid off the cops in order to be allowed to do business. All of a sudden, you just feel this. Everybody's looking at each other. But why do we have to keep on constantly putting up with this? And the nickels, the dimes, the pennies, and the quarters started flying. Why? Why, why that? Why do people do that? The was payoff. That... that was the payoff. Oh, 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 oh. That was the payoff. It was to symbolize the payoff. Yeah. You already got... Here's some more. And here's some more. To be there, you know, it's just like, oh, it's so beautiful. I just like, you know, it's like. Was it exciting? Oh, it was so exciting. It was like, ow, oh, we're doing it. We're doing it. We're, we're fucking nanners. So that's amazing, right? It's amazing to hear from someone who was at the Stonewall raid. Um And that's one of the things that's so remarkable about this podcast. Four episodes um, have been released at the time that we're recording. And Sylvia Rivera is certainly the most well-known of the four, Um, although I think there's a lot of sort of misinformation about her uh, has kind of grown up. And it's great to to really hear from her. Um, And then Dr. Evelyn Hooker who's the fourth episode, is pretty well known for people who read gay history. You know, the the work that she did as a psychologist was very important. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not sure. Certainly, I don't think anybody's heard her voice or very few people will have heard her voice. And then Wendell Sayers, uh, that's the kind of a, a very intersectional episode. Um, he was uh, an African-American attorney um, who was one of the early members of the Mattachine Society, uh, the first uh, gay civil rights group. Um, and he, you know, speaks really essentially about being a black man um, who was, you know, realized that he was gay and how his parents reacted to that. And then uh, Edith Aidy, um, who I had heard of, not under her own name, but under her pen name. She wrote one of the first uh, gay publications. Um, so these are really, you know, these many gay people won't know these voices, won't know the, you know, these people's role. And there's just an amazing kind of archaeological 
benefit uh, to hearing their voices, hearing their stories. It's it's kind of an amazing discovery. Yeah, something about the time that's passed between when these were recorded and and now it's it being made into a podcast makes it all that much more moving. It yeah. it's, it feels completely different than it would feel if he sat down with some very old people today in 2016, yeah. even the same people maybe, and talked yeah. about their status as as gay icons because. They're talking in a time in which there was barely a name for the mm-hmm. movement that they were starting to create. Yeah. And so there's really a sense that there's just this rich, it's as if this sort of treasure trove of, of rich oral history has been opened up. The production really adds to that, oh, too. Oh, my goodness. I know. I had never listened to this before. His his manner as a host is perfect. And that 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 is not, I have to say, and Dana, sometimes you host the show, June, you host the podcast. It's like not always very easy to hit that target. Um, and it's not clear exactly what it should be, like the balance between formality of presentation and, you know, the natural intimacy of informality. It's a tough balance. He seems to he seems to know how to strike it completely instinctively. And then, Dana, I thought that was a brilliant point that 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 the bulk of these interviews, if I'm not mistaken, come from the 80s. Yeah, from 1989. Yeah. And that's kind of the beginning of the end. I mean, mm-hmm. it's such a turning point in the history, both of the of the West and the closet, in a way. And you could argue that the world we live in now begins in '89, and um, it, it it's somehow it hasn't become monumentalized history, or it it doesn't have a Ken like it. You can't give it a Ken Burns treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, the history of the closet, a Ken Burns treatment yet. <laughs> you know, it doesn't have a consensus. You know, the, the, the consensus sweep of history is not necessarily in favor of the total acceptance of um, gay rights and eventually gay marriage. Um, people are describing history, but also still living through it. It's, yeah, there's something, I mean, I'm kind of repeating myself, but there's something about hearing their voices. And I have to say, I've been aware of Eric Marcus's work for decades. He's a very prolific writer. Um, you know, he's in a sense, he's a jobbing book writer. He, you know, he, he's done a lot of books about uh, gay history, about suicide, about, you know, like about issues. He's not really known for his, you know, particularly amazing prose. Like it, he's, he, he's very reliable. And I, well, he must be a good interviewer well, because exactly. he has a way of putting people at ease. And exactly. These interviews are funny. They're no. full of funny stories. Edith Ada sings yeah. several yeah. times. Gets yeah. that, it sounds like a ukulele maybe, but she, she starts yeah. singing these popular songs to which she's made up all of these kind of butch lyrics. It's right. so wonderful. Yeah, no, he absolutely so just, I mean, it's amazing that hearing just a few minutes of his introductions completely transformed the way I think of him. I mean, I'm just in awe both of his uh, his interview style, and also, as we were saying earlier, about the way that he sets up these podcasts. It's a brilliant recycling in a way. Um, I'm so impressed. Like, apparently, you know, he's, as he says at the beginning of, of the introduction, he came across the tapes from these, you know, almost 30-year-old interviews and thought, wow, you know, this these can't just be lost. So Wendell Sayers, the person in the second uh, interview, um, he didn't appear in Eric Marcus's book under his own name because even he was in his 80s when Eric Marcus uh, interviewed him. I think he said he was 84. And he didn't want his family to hear. Yeah. And I mean, and he was, you know, a, an attorney who lived in Denver, uh, apparently a very lonely man. And that's one of the themes that really comes through. So as, as well as these people being, um, you know, key in history and get, you know, key figures in gay history, uh, to to a slightly less extent, Wendell Sayers, perhaps, although he was, as I say, an early member of Mattachine. But um, 
you know, that except perhaps for Sylvia Rivera, they were really lonely people. And it's it's heartbreaking, uh, as is the story. Let's hear a bit uh, from his interview. Um, his father uh, arranged for them to go to Minneapolis to go to the Mayo Clinic for him to be investigated. Finally, my dad came to me one day and told me what uh, he had heard, whether he heard it, what, how he found it out that somebody must have told him. What did your dad hear? He didn't tell me. He told me things. He told me that he had heard that I was not natural, sexually. He said, we'll go to uh, the Mayo Clinic, get your examinations, and see if we can find out what caused it, what to do about it. So he puts Mother and I in the car, and we go up to uh, Minnesota. Minnesota, okay. That was back in the days... Couldn't get a place to stay. You couldn't get a place to eat. Because you're black. Because you're black. So. What did you do? Buy crackers and bologna and in the store and take them out and eat them, stuff like that. Where did you sleep? Got a tent. We got one of these uh, ten by twelve tents, and we stayed in the tent at night. Take all of that and put it together. It's awfully hard on anybody. Yeah, listening to that clip of Wendell Sayers, June, I was, it, it was a moment that I was really glad that not every subject of this podcast was a famous leader of a movement right, of some right. kind, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's a chance to hear the history of ordinary people who had extraordinary things happen to them in their lives. And he is an incredible storyteller. And as far as the loneliness of the subjects, too, again, I thought about Edith Ide, who was maybe my favorite just because her story has this fun Hollywood angle where yeah. she was a secretary at a movie studio yeah. and essentially started what we would now call a zine. She yeah. started writing this lesbian newsletter called Vice Versa and uh, and and giving it out to the gay women she knew. And there's just something so so sort of alterna about her that yeah. I absolutely yeah. love, even though she's in her 80s when she's talking to Eric Marcus. But the moment of loneliness I wanted to mention in her segment is when uh, Eric Marcus describes it in his setup, actually. He says that... At one point, he called her at her home. She picked up the phone and immediately knew it was him. And she and he said, how did you know it was me? And she said, well, whenever the phone rings, <laughs> it's going to be you. I mean, essentially, mm-hmm. she was living alone and no one ever called her. With 13 cats. <laughs> She's June's heroine. Right? <laughs> Just to interrupt slightly the, the total love affair with this podcast, which, I mean, I adore. I'm not going to, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. But I th- I was struck that it is easier. It was easier to set things up when the story was relatively simple and when there wasn't, um, when we didn't really know much about them. Um, obviously, Sylvia Rivera is pretty well known generally. Um, but for example, the the Eve- Dr. Evelyn Hooker uh, episode, I felt didn't work quite as well um, because her story is somewhat complicated. Uh, it involved, um, you know, meeting people, doing studies, reporting the results of the studies, what that meant. It was, and it just felt like it was not quite as easy to understand, not quite as emotional, not quite as immediate as the others. That's interesting. I loved that episode. Huh. Yeah. So Dr. Evelyn Hooker um, was in a way, I mean, she's a hugely important figure. She's a straight woman who was friendly with some gay people, um, you know, was not a hater, essentially. In and the 1950s. In the 1950s started, right? and was persuaded um, by some gay friends to run a study, uh, a psychological study that would figure out if really essentially if gay men were mentally ill. Yeah, mentally ill, because that was you know that was the the accepted view that that homosexuality was a mental illness 
And her studies very effectively found that, no, they weren't. It's interesting. I, I found that episode incredibly moving because mm. it brings you back to this moment when, I mean, sort of quasi-Soviet style, yeah. we, you know, had met the, the medical establishment had pathologized gayness. And if you were just a, you know, sort of ordinary white heteronormative mid-century human being, it was highly likely that the medical establishment was going to provide you with your default attitude towards gay people unless mm -hmm. you knew someone who was out or you yourself were gay. And that just struck me as a huge turning point. And the degree of kind of courage and sort of vanguard intelligence it took and a vanguard imagination it took to rethink it, which just seemed to me a turning point kind of in Foucauldian history in a way, that, that this way of using um, uh, credentialed expertise in order to abnormalize something that didn't deserve it was, mm -hmm. uh, was uh, to me, was really powerful. That's, that's really interesting. I suspect perhaps that the reason I was less impressed with it was that I've read a lot about her. Uh, and, I knew so little, it's yeah, true. And I, I knew mean, a lot and, of and her... And shame on my ignorance, but no. to me it was just an extraordinary revelation to know this had happened. There's something very, very crucial to uncovering gay history and to, you know, making it available in this very immediate way. I think it's, you know, it's, um, if not God's work, it's, uh, you know, the gay God's work. All right. Well, Making Gay History, it's a podcast from the journalist Eric Marcus. It's really, really beautifully done uh, and highly recommended. Um, check it out. Tell us what you think of it. Facebook.com slash CultureFest. All right. Moving on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? You know, my endorsement is something that I would not have thought would have been particularly fresh or of interest to me and that then just stole my heart. And so now I want to tell everyone about it, even though it's the kind of thing a lot of our listeners are likely to come across in their normal podcast listening as well. But it's just the episode of Fresh Air, I believe, last week or the week before that had Stephen Colbert as a guest. Did you hear this, Jean? Uh -uh. So, so to preface, I don't really watch Stephen Colbert on The Late Show. Even his old show on Comedy Central, which I loved, I rarely was up late enough to watch, or if I was, I was working on something. Um, so Stephen Colbert, while very dear to my heart, as to many Americans, is sort of on the periphery of my consciousness mm -hmm. right now as a cultural figure. But he went on Terry Gross to talk about being a year into The Late Show and, and what, what it's been like hosting that, that show for the past year. And he is just such a wonderful talker about his own craft. It sort of reminded me of almost like a really good episode of Inside the Actors Studio, you know, which is a show that's oft deplored. But when somebody goes on there who's not just a blowhard, when somebody goes on there who's intelligent and thinks about performance and character and what it means to transform on stage or on screen, it can be really, really interesting. Yeah. And that's exactly what this conversation turns into. And it's really surprisingly revelatory of Colbert's inner life as well. So he talks about dropping that character and what it's meant for him to try to become himself while standing on a stage, you know, with millions of people watching on, on TV. And uh, he really, really opens up about it and talks about his faith and talks about how he essentially says that I stopped doing the Stephen Colbert character from, you know, his previous show, the kind of, you know, Bill O'Reilly-esque figure, because he sort of felt it was killing his soul, you know. Whoa. And uh, and anyway, he's funny and wonderful and a great storyteller. And Terry Gross really gets a lot of great stuff out of him. So The Fresh Air with Stephen Colbert as guest. I don't have the exact date, but it's very recent in their archives. Amazing. Mm. Uh, June, what do you have? Well, Funnily enough, just by coincidence, as we're talking about a couple of pieces of art that are versions of reality um, or you know, sort of based in fact, I've been reading the last three books that I've read 
um, have been similar kind of novelizations of based on real lives. So um, I read Eleanor and Hake, which is about the love affair that shaped a first lady, that of Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, the Crime Writer by Jill Dawson, which is a fantastic book uh, based on the life of Patricia Highsmith when she was in England, but definitely, I hope, goes in fictional direction. But I won't talk too much about that because it's not available in the US yet. Um, but right now I'm reading a really interesting book called uh, A Thin Bright Line by uh, Lucy Jane Bledsoe, which is a novel based on the life of her aunt, uh, Lucy Bell Bledsoe. Um, who did important scientific work uh, as a editor um, and who also was a lesbian in a pretty out way, but uh, also in the way that, you know, to have a life, um, she had to also be quite circumscribed. Um, and a really interesting, fascinating book. And so it just feels odd. It feels like the entire world of fiction is currently, um, you know, just versions of of life that are have some facts have some conversations imagined i uh, this week i'm, I'm going to endorse with um all due respect to the crown which i really enjoyed and intend to watch uh all of the season as something of an antidote to its possible excesses in the direction of uh um royalty idolatry there's a 2006 movie june i'm sure you're familiar with it this is england oh yes um, such a good movie um written and directed by shane meadows it's a story of skinheads in england uh takes place in 1983 uh and it's about the crossover between skinhead culture and west indian culture and ska and soul reggae and violence and what the nature of thatcherite england was and what england now is in some respects uh and it is such an unbelievably well done film um anyway dana Surely you've seen this movie? No, I have not seen This oh. Is England. Oh and my gosh. It's a fantastic, I love things that, that look at a, a situation or, or a place over uh, over time. And Shane Meadow has made a whole series of movies, um, you know, in a, in a similar vein, mostly also set in Nottingham uh, and on a particular estate in Nottingham where, as it happens, I went to university. Um, and yeah, a really fascinating view of the world. Oh, Dana Stevens, hi thee to a uh, VCR. and uh, I'm scribbling it down right now. I'm grateful to know that there are other um, movies by the same director. I'm very excited to watch them. All right, well, June, thank you so much for coming in and, and filling in. Thank you for having me. Dana, that was very fun. Thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our interns are Lizzie Fison and uh, Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Networks. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster at iTunes.com slash Panoply. And our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For June Thomas and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. And no matter what you are, if you hitch your wagon to a star, you'll find your share of happiness, too. That's wonderful. <laughs>